Hello, church. <laughs> Jollyo. Chop, chop. I don't know what. I'm sorry. Any other stereotypical British things to say? I'd... Do you just say bloody hell? <laughs> the things that happen in church. <laughs> That's excellent. Well, the Bible talks about hell and blood, so it fits. What Sarah didn't tell you was that... Um, that's the gal here from England who's going to be leading you ladies. And man, I, I wish I could be there. The, the, the brunch is going to be from Beyond Bread. It's going to be great. So um, you can sign up online, uh, the church app, or you can call the office. We'll get you signed up for that. What she didn't tell you is that back in England, she, her job, she's a hospital chaplain. And so she was telling me that her name tag says chaplain, and her last name is chaplain. Her name is Sarah Chaplin. So her name tag says chaplain, chaplain. She leads to all sorts of confusion and um, funny conversations. Uh, I wonder if your name has something to do with your destiny, something about you. So, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Rusty. And um, I'm, I'm glad you're here. So, this question up here, I want you to consider how you would fill in the blank. For me, joy is Jesus. Keeners. For me, joy is, how would you finish that sentence? Maybe you would say, for me, joy is playing with my grandkids on the floor. For me, joy is being on a beach lounger somewhere far away in some hot place on a, uh, by the sea. For me, joy is a bomber's three-peat. Right, Erickson's? For me, joy is building a really successful business. Probably when I was a kid, I would uh, finish that sentence. For me, joy is Christmas. I loved Christmas. I still do. But as a kid, my favorite thing in the world. So I loved when the tree went up. In fact, after the service today, we're putting up the tree in my house. It's going up. It's time. I remember as a kid just laying on the ground by the tree, staring at those gifts, dreaming and... Um, my favorite day was December 24th when I got to open those presents. I just loved everything about Christmas, which made like December 26th the absolute worst day of the year for me. Do you remember that feeling like when the tree came down and it's over, it's all over? And for me, but honestly, as a kid, that was, that was the most depressing day of the year. Joy just evaporated. Joy often can be connected to our circumstances. But um, what if joy could be found regardless of the circumstances you faced? That's really the claim of the Apostle Paul in this letter called the, uh, the letter to the Philippians. This little book in the New Testament written to the church in Philippi where this is kind of his thesis. Church no matter where you find yourself in life, you can find joy. 
So this letter is really an attempt, I think, to help the church live in joy no matter the circumstances. And so what we're doing as a church over these months is we're going through this letter uh, to, in, in the pursuit of this joy that is unshakable. Uh, last week we began and we looked at the first reference to joy in this book. It's only four chapters long. He talks about joy 16 times, way more than any other book. And so when we began the series last week, we looked at that first reference to joy this morning. We're going to look at the second reference to joy here, um, which we find in verse 18, actually, at the close of the words Maria read, when Paul says, because of this, I rejoice, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Because of this, I rejoice. Now, the question is, what is the this? That's the cause of his joy. Well, to know what the this is, you got to go back to the beginning of his thought in verse 12 when he says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, and he's going to finish that sentence, but, but he doesn't actually say what's happened to him. He kind of, you know, he just assumes that they know what has happened to him, and they did. But when you read that, he doesn't say what has happened to him. So what has happened to Paul that he's talking about here? Well, to know what he's referencing you need to go back to the book of Acts. We're not going to go there because it's a long story found in Acts chapter 21 through 28. I encourage you to read it on your own time. It describes what happened to Paul, but let me give you the Coles Notes version. Paul found himself in the city of Jerusalem going to the Jewish temple to celebrate, to worship God there at a feast, and he was falsely accused by those who opposed him. By opposed everything he represented, posed his message. They have falsely accused him of wrongdoing. They stirred up a crowd to essentially beat him and they wanted to kill him. But he was arrested by the authorities, hauled in front of the Jewish leaders to help be held account for something he didn't, a crime he didn't commit. And um, they accused him and threatened him. And they passed him on to the governing authorities, to Governor Felix. He was taken to the city of Caesarea, where he was presented before the Roman governor of Felix. And Acts records for us, he was held in prison for two years. Can you imagine languishing in prison for two years? This was a guy that was always on the move. He was traveling around the world as a missionary, sharing the good news of Jesus. Now here is stuck in a cell for two years because he's been falsely accused. And as time goes on, we're, we're told that Governor Felix is being moved on by Caesar. Now there's an, another governor, Governor Festus. And, Caesar, and Felix, before he left, because he wanted to just, you know, curry some favor with the Jews, he decided to keep Paul in prison, even though he had done nothing wrong. And so now Festus is the governor there, and he's presented before Festus, and he's presented before King Agrippa, the Jewish uh, king of the region, and ultimately, after more time, he's sent on a ship to Rome to stand trial in front of Caesar. He's put on this ship, and as they're headed in the Mediterranean towards Rome, after a couple of years already of being imprisoned, a great storm comes, and it destroys the ship, and they're shipwrecked. They land on this little island. We're not sure, it doesn't tell us a lot of what happened on that island, other than when Paul is trying to make a fire with the survivors, a deadly viper comes out of the wood and bites his hand, and they think he's going to die because that's what happened when the snake bites you, but God, in his power, um, heals Paul. And they continued on their way and eventually got to Rome where he writes this letter after having already been in prison in Rome for two years. That's what's happened to Paul. 
He didn't know what was going to happen. Was he going to live? Was he going to die? He was waiting to stand trial. All these things had befallen him, false accusations, threats, mockery, false imprisonment, shipwreck, the threat of execution, being bitten by a deadly viper. And so how does he finish this sentence? He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. In other words, all of that stuff, all of that persecution and suffering and adversity and opposition has just served to advance the cause of God's mission in the world. The opposition to the gospel has actually served the gospel. Here's my point in this message, because I think this is Paul's point in this passage. I I just kind of want you to see this this morning. You can throw that statement up there. God's work is accomplished not in spite of opposition and adversity that you might face, but because of it. Okay, God's work in and through you and around you is accomplished not despite opposition and adversity, but because of it. In fact, we're going to see that this is, this is the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you go to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, it says this. Therefore, since we, have, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before Him, He, Jesus, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So He says, for the joy set before Jesus, He endured the cross. What was Jesus' joy? Like you don't normally think, joy, cross, Joy, hanging on a cross, dying, pain. In what way was the cross joy for Jesus? Well, it wasn't the fact that he was suffering. He didn't find joy in the act of suffering, in the experience of pain. But in spite of that, there was this joy. Um, What was his joy that allowed him to endure the cross? I think it's twofold. Jesus' joy in that suffering, in that opposition he faced, was that he knew that what was happening to him would bring about salvation for you and for me and all who would believe in his name. He knew that through the cross, people would be saved. He is making a way for us to be reconciled with God. And he knew that. And for him on the cross, that was joy for him. I think he was also experiencing joy because he knew that in what he was doing, he was finishing the mission that God the Father had sent him to do. He was accomplishing everything that he he was to do. And he was glorifying and pleasing God through this. And for him, all of that, pleasing his Father, glorifying his Father, and working out salvation for you and I, for him, that brought joy while he endured the cross. 
God's work is accomplished not just in spite of opposition and adversity, but because of it. And that's how the gospel started. That's how your salvation began. And so John chapter 14, we see the words of Jesus in my men's discipleship group that meets Tuesday evenings. We're going through John chapter by chapter. This last week we were talking about John 14. I'd never really thought on these words before, but Jesus says this. He knows He's about to go to the cross in the coming days, and His time is short. His final instruction to His disciples, He says, I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He's talking about Satan, the devil. The prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but He comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father. It doesn't say He comes, but in spite of that, the world will know. He says, He comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what the Father has commanded me. He's saying that God is going to use the opposition of the enemy who's trying to kill, destroy Jesus Christ to actually make a victor out of him. It's in the act of opposing God, opposing the gospel, right, that victory is won. God uses opposition and adversity not just in, uh, to, to accomplish His work. And this is what Paul is saying. This is his own experience. He says, all the attempts to snuff me out and to snuff out what I'm saying, what I'm doing is actually just serve to further it. How? Well, he tells us in two ways. What does that look like? In verse 13, he says, As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. What he's saying is, because of what I have suffered, this opposition, persecution, adversity, more and more people have heard of Jesus Christ. I mean, if you think of it, because of all that happened to him, he stood before all the religious leaders, to account for Christ. He stood before governors, Festus, Felix, kings, Agrippa. And now here, here he is at Rome, and he says this at the very end of the book of Philippians, as he's just giving his kind of parting words, he says, all, the, all of God's people here, send your greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. He says, this gospel for which I am in chains has actually come into the household of Caesar. It's like I've been a Trojan horse. They've brought me right into the seat of power and they didn't even know what they were doing. They're trying to snuff it out. What they don't even know is they're spreading it. They're just serving God's purposes and they don't even know. He's a captive audience. Like literally, he's captive. He's chained to a guard who heard about Jesus. And because others who otherwise would not have, God uses all of this to bring the good news into the very seats of power in the universe at that time. Paul can be chained, but the gospel can't be chained. And here's the thing, Paul is less concerned with his own free movement than the free movement of the gospel. He doesn't write complaining about the food in prison complaining about the false accusations, the injustice, right? He's not as concerned about his own free movement as he is the free movement of the work of God. And you see this really clearly in Colossians because he also writes 
the book of Colossians to that church while he's in prison. He writes to a few churches. He says this in Colossians 4, verses 3 and 4. He says, pray for us too that God may open a door. Like what? Open a door from the prison so he can get out, so he can go like travel the world and continue his work and be free? No, he says, pray that God will open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. That's what he's most concerned about. Open doors for God to work. And what he's saying is, all that opposition has created opportunities. Did you know that everything you face, whether it's opposition from someone else because of your faith, whether it's some adversity, hardship you experience in life, creates opportunities to exalt Jesus. Opposition will bring opportunities. And you see this again and again um, in life, in history, in the scriptures. I I remember being in in Providence College, uh, in the seminary there, a lot of international students. One guy was, he was like six foot five. He was from Sudan. He was from the Dinka tribe. If you ever watch National Geographic, that's a tribe, they like the big sticks and they like fight one another with these big sticks. You ever seen that? Like, these guys are warriors. This guy's like 6'5", but a gentle soul. And um, he, uh, before he had come to Providence, he had done ministry in India. He was ministering to these people. There was this police raid. They all got swept up. He was falsely accused, found himself in prison, no trial. He languished there for, I don't know if it was months or years. But all I remember him telling me is that he, 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 uh, he was so grateful that he had a captive audience there. In his time in prison... He led 3,000 people to the Lord. Like where he was, he just saw that God had placed him here and he was going to be faithful and look for the opportunities wherever he was. God uses opposition and opportunities to accomplish his work in and through us. And so in Acts chapter 8, again, you see this over and over again. The church only exists in Jerusalem, this little group of believers at this point. Now, at the beginning of Acts, Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And they're thinking, we're just a bunch of fishermen, normal guys. How are we going to do this? And here they are. They're all just huddled together in Jerusalem. A great persecution breaks out on that first church, and they all scatter into the region. One of those guys was Philip who scattered, we find him in Acts chapter 8, he's walking along this road when he encounters an Ethiopian official in a chariot headed back to Ethiopia, an important man. He has this God-ordained encounter with him. This Ethiopian puts his faith in Christ, is baptized there, and he goes on his way. And history tells us that the, uh, the church in Ethiopia goes back to that day. Maybe you know that the rest of Africa heard the gospel when the Europeans took it. Not always in pleasant ways there, except for the Ethiopians. They've had the gospel. They've had the church right from the beginning. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And how did God do that? He did it through opposition. He did it through hardship. Kind of reminded me of my, as I was thinking about this, my lawn. Because every spring, there's yellow flowers. I think they're pretty. Dandelions. How do they just, how do they spread? They just, they just, there's always more and more of them. Like every year, there's more dandelions. 
and, and you know, they grow, and then, and then the yellow turns into the puff seeds. And I think, I got to get rid of these things. I'm going to destroy these dandelions so they don't spread. And so I take my lawnmower. And I run them over, chop them down, spit them out. And then there's more. And then it dawned on me, oh, yeah. I mean, you know what? If it's always a nice sunny day, never any wind, never a storm, never turbulence, never violence, those seeds never go anywhere. They just stay right there. But the storm comes and takes them and blows them or a lawnmower comes and chops them up and spits them out and spreads them somewhere else and they grow. And so when I learn that, then I turn my lawnmower around so I'm throwing it on the neighbor's yard. <laughs> and Paul is saying that's how God works often. He uses all of those things that could come against us, that might be used to bring us down, to destroy us, to demoralize us, actually to bring about something better, to advance His work. So, because of this I rejoice. Because of what has happened to me, others have heard. I think of Paul Emmer. You know, I get the odd, many of you know Paul, right? Our brother. He's fighting stage four cancer. Get the odd update from him, right? He's in Mexico treatment. He's in Calgary treatment. He's at cancer care treatment. He doesn't want to be doing this. He didn't ask for this. We pray that God heals that man and takes the cancer away. And yet in the midst of all of that, as he faces the situation he didn't want to ask for, he finds himself in all of these places and all of these situations, and he recounts the open doors that God has provided to share the good news of Jesus to people who need it. And you know what? For him, as much as he wants to be well, he rejoices that God opens doors through the things that would destroy us. So that's the first thing that causes him to rejoice. The gospel is advanced because, because of my chains, more people are hearing. And then he says uh, in the next verse, in verse 14, he says, And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So because of all that has happened to me and is happening to me, um, more people, not just more people are hearing, but more Christians are proclaiming. People have been emboldened by the situation to do the work of God. Paul's faithfulness in his situation inspired timid, apathetic Christians and gave them boldness. Because you know, boldness is contagious. Boldness is contagious. Have you ever experienced that? You saw someone else going through something hard and you thought, wow, and that inspired you. And you look at yourself and go, why don't I do, why don't, why don't I stand up? Why don't I open my mouth? Why don't I live and think like this? Boldness is contagious. 
You know, some of you know the story of Jim Elliott. He was a guy in his 20s. Back in the 1950s, he went to the jungles of Ecuador to share the good news of Jesus with an unreached people group. Um, he, was, he and his colleagues were martyred. They were killed there in the jungle. And uh, he, actually, my, probably my all-time favorite quote, it comes from Jim Elliott. And I love this. Um, he says this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I love that statement. So for those of you who wonder, like, is it worth following Jesus? Is it worth the cost? Is it worth giving my life to Christ? He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Um, He lost his life there in the jungle. And because of that, um, it just led to a movement of people. Just inspired Many people to devote their lives to witness, to devote their lives to mission that otherwise wouldn't have because they were inspired by the story of faithfulness in the midst of adversity. I feel that in myself. You know, I feel myself being called from slumber, from fear, from comfort when when I see and I hear those who are faithful in the midst of trial. Like Wednesday evening, some of us were in this room praying for the persecuted church, hearing stories of people like Paul imprisoned for their faith, or even reading the story of Paul in Acts. I'm reading his story, and I'm finding my heart kindled. I'm finding courage growing, desire growing to be faithful, to look around me and going, what does it look like for me to be faithful in the midst of whatever I'm facing to exalt Jesus, it challenges my fear and my apathy. And maybe you know that dynamic. That's why the author of Hebrews said, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and run the race with perseverance. Since we are surrounded by such a great... What is he talking about? The chapter before Hebrews 11, it was just talking about the stories of the people of faith who had stood strong in spite of all of the trials And he said, because we are surrounded by these people, may we persevere, may we be bold. And so maybe for some of you that you're younger, maybe you're in school, maybe you're teenagers. I don't know if you've, maybe you see a fellow Christian who who is kind of mocked for their faith. And you see them stand strong. You, you see them love and share Jesus in the midst of the opposition. And you look at that and, that, and that helps you have the courage not to hide yourself. If they can do it, maybe I can do it too. If God can work that out in that person's life, maybe he can work that out in my life too. Maybe the same God that's at work in Paul is at work in us through what we face. Boldness is contagious. And so he says, I rejoice that because of all the opposition and adversity that I've faced, it's caused others to proclaim Christ. Notice he doesn't say it's caused all these other people to believe and become Christians. He says it's caused more people to hear and more Christians to proclaim. His joy isn't in fruitfulness. It's not in the outcome. It's not in the numbers. His joy is in faithfulness. He's not concerned with the outcome. 
That's up to God. He'll trust God for that. He says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verses 14. Paul says, Thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of Him everywhere. If you're a Christian, that's what God wants to do. You are sm- you're supposed to be smelly. Are you smelly? To spread the aroma of the knowledge of Jesus everywhere so that when people encounter you, they might encounter Christ. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. We don't smell good. To the other, we are an aroma that brings life. We smell good. But he says, regardless of how we smell to other people, to God, we are the pleasing aroma of Christ. The outcome is up to God. That's not ours. Our job is not to win people, it's to witness. It's not to persuade people, it's to proclaim faithfully. The outcome is up to God. So his, his rejoicing is not in the outcome. His rejoicing right, is in the is in the faithfulness of God's people to proclaim the faithfulness of God to use the situation to advance His work. But there was another sort of opposition that he faces here. He faced this opposition from outside in the world, but he also kind of faced some opposition from the inside, from amongst people he knew, and he may have considered friends even, Opposition from the church. He says this in verse 15 through 17. He's just talked about how uh, because of his chains, more Christians have been confident to proclaim the gospel without fear. He continues, he says, It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The, The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. So he says, all these people are proclaiming, but he says, I know that people are proclaiming for two different reasons. Some are doing it because they've just been emboldened and out out of kind of love for me and partnership in this work, they're proclaiming, they're being faithful. We're standing together. But he said, there are others that they have false motives they are, they are preaching Christ out of selfish ambition, out of envy and rivalry to stir up trouble for Him while they are in chains. How are they stirring up trouble by preaching Christ? Well, some people are thinking, we can make things worse for Paul. We can just stir the pot more. He's there for Jesus. Hey, if I just keep making more noise and stirring up more, I can actually make things worse for Paul. I can bring him down a peg. Or, oh, you know, man, he, was, he had a lot of influence. Well, everyone's talking about Paul. Yeah, but now he's in jail. Now there's room for me to have influence, me to elevate myself, me to gather a crowd, me to build my ministry. And so they saw his imprisonment as an opportunity to kind of knock in, in preaching Christ to knock him down a peg, and to elevate themselves. And, you know, we got to be on guard against envy because 
I, I think that this, this is such like an insidious, uh, it's an insidious sin. Something that as Christians, and, and maybe, maybe even especially as like pastors and leaders, but I think all of us, things that we can face, it's insidious because it can be masked by something that looks good, a good activity, but with a bad motive, a wrong motive. I, I don't think this is a true story. I think this is more of a legend, but um, it's a story from the fourth century about this sin of envy. Talked about some inexperienced demons. They were finding it difficult to um, afflict this godly hermit. They had lured him with various temptations like, uh, you know, love of money, materialism, um, sexual sin. But this godly hermit, he kept denying their allurements. The demons reported their problem to Satan. We just can't get to this guy. Nothing works. The evil one told them that they had been far too hard on the man. He suggested a more effective strategy. He said, send him a message that his brother has just been made the bishop of Antioch. Bring him good news. So the demons used the devil's scheme, reporting the wonderful news to the pious hermit. And on hearing this, the godly hermit fell into a deep, wicked jealousy. When you hear that other people are doing well, Envy can be insidious because it can motivate us to do things that are good things. And Paul knew that some people, they were just trying to make life harder for him. They were trying to elevate themselves, not elevate Christ through the preaching of Christ, to elevate themselves. And how does he respond? To be, he says, well, what does he say? What does it matter in verse 18? What does it matter why they're doing what they're doing? If, if they're trying to make life more difficult for me. The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. What's the important thing? The important thing is that in every way, whether false motives or true, Christ is preached. And in this, I find joy. He doesn't get overly concerned about what other people are doing or saying, why they're doing it. He doesn't feel the need to defend himself. He's not focused on his critics. He's focused on Jesus Christ. He's focused on exalting Christ. And so he just doesn't care. At at times, he really lashes into people. Look look, look what he says in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 9. He he says to these people, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. So he's really worked up there, but here in Philippians, he's he's like, I don't care. What's the difference? Well, in Galatians, the problem was a false message. They are perverting the message of Christ, and I care about the message of Christ. I don't want anything to diminish the message of Christ, so he's concerned about a false message, but he's not concerned about a false messenger. He's not concerned about why they say what they say, as long as the message that is preached is the message of Jesus, because that's what matters most to him. It's the exalting of Christ 
in his life and around him. That's where he finds joy. And I want to suggest to you that's where we who follow Jesus are called to find our joy too. A joy that is true despite the circumstances and maybe even because of adversity and opposition. A joy that's found by caring more about the glory of Jesus than our own glory. Caring more about Christ than comfort. Caring more about Christ than our critics. Paul found joy in focusing on Christ's glory above his own. So my joy, for me, joy is, how should we answer that? I think one right way to answer that, for me, joy is in seeking God's glory above my own. And that's a joy we can have in all circumstances because God is at work in adversity to bring about His purposes. So as we kind of bring this to a close here, and I know it's not noon yet, so I feel I should stretch this out a little bit. But hopefully you'll be okay if I don't. Coming back to that text I read a few minutes ago from Hebrews 12 where it talked about the joy set before Jesus. He endured the cross, scorning its shame. Um, Then the writer says this, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So here's the command. It's described Jesus. You know, the joy he had as he endured the cross for those reasons. What's our job now? Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart, so that you can live in joy. So what does that mean to consider Jesus for the sake of our joy? Well, I think it means these two things that we've touched on here that Paul's been talking about. The first thing about considering him means to consider him above yourself. Seek to exalt Jesus above yourself. If you do that, if you consider Jesus first, if you put your focus on Him and exalting Him in your life and all your circumstances, no matter where you find yourself, you will not grow weary and lose heart. You can find joy. Put Jesus' glory above your own. But then I think it means that second thing, to consider Jesus means to look at His example. Look how God was at work through the cross, bringing about something great. That same God is at work in us. God's, God works not in spite of opposition and adversity, but because of it. So I don't know where you find yourself in your life. Some of you, you're facing adversity. Some of it, it's opposition from people that's related to your faith. If not now, then maybe another time. Maybe there's a cost to being faithful to God. Maybe it's not from someone else, but maybe it's just an affliction that has been brought on you, a diagnosis, some other trouble. You may not see how God is at work 
through that, but what Paul is saying and what the gospel tells us is that God is at work through, because of, in the midst of opposition and adversity. So look at it differently, he says, right? Opposition creates opportunities to exalt Jesus, to find our joy there. It changes the way you view your circumstances, that whatever you face, whatever trouble, it's not just something to overcome. It's not just something to get through. It's not just something to rid yourself of. It's not a barrier to God's work. It's not just a stepping stone to something better. God is at work. God will give opportunities and use it to exalt Himself through that. Are you looking for that? Are you looking for that? And are you desiring that above all else? And for Paul, the answer was yes. That's what matters most to me. I want Jesus exalted in my life. And because of that, and because of everything I face, I rejoice. Because joy is found in fixing our focus on God's glory above our own. So what would that look like in your life? What would that look like in your life, in whatever circumstances you're facing, to exalt Jesus, to see the opportunities, right, to advance the mission of God, to believe that He is at work in you? I just want to invite you into a moment of prayer. Um, As we come and as we talk to God, we'll just ask God to show you what this means for you, how it is that you need to put this word of His into practice. So let's pray. God, You have spoken to us through Your Word. I just pray, God, that You would take what we have heard and that You would just, uh, You would apply it to each of our lives um, so that we might know what it is we're supposed to do, God, with this word that we have heard. We thank you, God, that you are sovereign over all the circumstances we face. Like, I know in this room right now, there's people that are facing all sorts of afflictions, all sorts of adversities, all different types of opposition, and if they're not facing something now, they maybe will tomorrow or next month or next year. But God, we just are reminded this morning that you are a God who is sovereign over all these circumstances and not even one of them can be a barrier to hinder your work in and through us and in the world around us. But God, you are at work in all of those things just like you were at work in the cross when Satan tried to destroy Jesus and actually made him a victor. Actually worked out our salvation and we're just so thankful, God, that your son Jesus endured the cross. And so, God, I just pray that in those things in which we find ourselves that we need to endure, Lord, would you just help us to trust that you are at work? And would you just enable us, God, to find joy, um, joy in just knowing that in ways maybe we can see or maybe we don't even see, but that we know that through all of these things that we might face, 
Lord, that you have good purposes that you are accomplishing to advance your work in our lives and in around us in this world so that more people may know the life that comes through your Son. And God, I just pray that you would wean our hearts off of desiring our own glory, wean our hearts off of our own pride, wean our hearts off, the, off, off of our own desire for comfort, Lord, and just, just help us, Lord, to uh, find our deepest joy in exalting you, Lord, in all that we do, in everything we face, and we know that you will do it. So we just thank you, God, um, that you are with us in all things, and I just pray, God, that you would use us as we go from here back into our homes and our neighborhoods and our workplaces and our schools to exalt Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.